This is KVRX 91.7 Austin, and you are listening to Dialectica, an examination of the civic, political, and economic issues that matter to us all on global, national, and local levels. Dialectica is brought to you by students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and is produced in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy the show. with genuine fear of the Soviet Union. Many felt the Soviets wanted to expand their communist manifesto around the world and that there was a real risk the Soviets were going to overrun neighbouring countries in Western Europe. Cold War in 1945, the USSR, or Soviet Union, had a decided advantage in terms of the number of military forces available, and there was concern among Western European nations that there were not enough forces in Europe to stop a Soviet military attack. It was seen clearly by NATO military strategists that we just did not have the resources uh, to stop a Soviet thrust. If you looked at the air forces and the ground forces, I mean, the, the Soviet Third Shock Army could have cr- come across the Fulda Gap uh, and been at the Rhine probably in three days. That was Colonel Ron Sullivan, a retired U.S. Air Force pilot who served as a nuclear officer for the U.S. mission to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Colonel Sullivan will join us later as we continue to explore the role of NATO. The Red Menace and the associated fear of a massive Soviet invasion shaped the development of Western Europe's defence plans. The question was, who could provide for the collective defence of Western Europe? The answer? NATO. The creation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation addressed the need for an international response to the potential for a mass invasion by the Soviets. The next question was, how would NATO defend itself against the USSR.
nuclear weapons. Humanity's supreme arsenal. A technical marvel with the power to obliterate entire cities and kill hundreds of thousands of people in milliseconds. NATO decided shortly after its inception to rely on nuclear weapons to stop a Soviet attack. So nuclear weapons had to be uh, an important element in alliance term policy uh, in those days. And uh, they remained that way right through, uh, right through the 1980s. However, NATO's military response would not be limited to one or two tactical nuclear weapons, but thousands of nuclear warheads detonating on and over the entire European continent. A nuclear Armageddon centered on the border between NATO nations and the Soviet Union. Nuclear policy was a centerpiece of NATO policy in those days. We had literally thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons deployed in and around Europe. Good evening. This is Selena Smith, your host for Dialectica Radio. This is the second of two shows focusing on the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO strategists asserted that only nuclear weapons could stop the Red Menace from overwhelming military forces in Europe. Consequently, NATO set about to ensure its command structure and military were competent and comfortable using nuclear weapons. Uh, my particular case, uh, I was uh, the nuclear officer at the U.S. mission to NATO, and uh, twice a year we would have a nuclear exercise uh, in which a scenario would come down and we would exercise all the various procedures and decision-making uh, mechanisms that uh, ultimately resulted in a nuclear release uh, that was part of the exercise. But my recollection of NATO before the wall came down was an alliance that prepared itself. Colonel Ron Sullivan is an expert in missile defense and is presently a business manager for SAIC, a scientific engineering and technology applications company supporting NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. Colonel Sullivan is a true Cold War warrior whose military career spanned the war in Vietnam to the fall of the Soviet Union. NATO was an alliance in preparation. NATO's job was really deterrence. And what we did is we trained, we worked on our stability and our solidarity. Uh, we trained a lot. We had reforger exercises where U.S. forces would return to Germany. We had uh, complex and huge uh, aerial uh, uh, exercises, all in preparation for uh, what amounted to World War III. All the budgets and resources you needed were available because people sensed the threat. NATO never engaged in open warfare with the Soviet Union, and no NATO military personnel died defending the borders of Western Europe against a Soviet invasion. NATO today, of course, is a wartime alliance. It's deeply involved in operations, and it's, uh, it's losing soldiers uh, on a weekly basis. But today's NATO would be hard to recognize by most Cold War warriors. The biggest change that, that I would have to, there are probably four or five major changes uh, that stick out in my mind. The first one would be that NATO has gone from being a training alliance and a deter deterrence, alliance of deterrence, to 
uh, really deeply involved in operations. The lives of NATO military personnel are more at risk now than they have ever been. And starting in 1999 in Kosovo, certainly the uh, International Security Assistance Force, uh, currently 71,000 troops or so from 43 countries, uh, including many non-NATO countries, uh, but under NATO command in Afghanistan, uh, anti-piracy operations, anti-terrorist operations in the Mediterranean. So the biggest change is that NATO is now an operational alliance uh, rather than just a training and, and deterrence alliance. NATO forces are presently engaged in combat far from its Cold War borders and with an enemy that differs vastly from the military juggernaut of the Soviet Union. Today, NATO forces do battle with terrorists in Afghanistan and pirates off the Somali coast. Uh, I would also point out the huge expansion of NATO's uh, uh, area of responsibility. Far beyond the Balkans, NATO is in the Gulf of Aden and Afghanistan, etc. Uh, it, sent, uh, it sent humanitarian relief forces to Pakistan after the earthquake in 2006, for example. So it's much more, it's much more geographically expansive uh, than it used to be. Colonel Sullivan details several differences in NATO since the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, thirdly, you'd have to point out the, uh, the membership expansion of NATO. We, are, we now have allies, not just friends or partners, but allies with countries that 25 years ago were hosting uh, Soviet armored formations and nuclear weapons, and now they're, um, the Czechs and the Poles, etc., are, are full-up uh, NATO alliance members. And that leads to another uh, observation, which is far from being a, uh, an adversary, in spite of recent difficulties brought about mostly by the war with Georgia, uh, NATO is deeply involved in cooperation with Russia and uh, trying hard to rebuild uh, that relationship uh, as a partner rather than an adversary. Another element, of course, uh, I mentioned that the nuclear policy used to be central to NATO, and and uh, NATO has gone through a an implosion uh, of uh, denuclearization of its policy and strategy uh, from thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons to a, a very small, almost handful of weapons that takes months to actually bring up to, to operational status. The whole NATO relationship with the EU. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, the NATO and the EU, NATO and the EU wouldn't even talk to each other. And now, that relationship is 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 developing. So there's been a, a huge number of changes that, that almost presents an entirely different alliance than what it was before the wall came down. Although it has been 20 years since the demise of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall, NATO struggles with its transition in the present world. I think it ultimately depends on what, how we define the present mission of NATO, that with the demise of the, of the Soviet Union, the original objectives and, and mission of NATO um, had to change drastically. That was Professor Thomas Johnson, professor at the Naval Postgraduate School and the Director on Culture and Conflict Studies. Professor Johnson identifies the new challenges for NATO. 
I think all other things being equal, the importance of NATO relative to uh, world security has probably declined since the demise of the Soviet Union, and that's, again, a direct reflection of what the original mission of NATO was. But with that being said, I think that it's important to have a coalition of nations that can come together to deal with a, a milieu of problems that presently face the international system. We might not have a monolithic threat facing us like we did during the Cold War in the Soviet Union, uh, but in, in many respects we have more complex threats uh, facing uh, um, uh, the international community. And I think that any type of organization or body that brings different nations of the world together to be able to discuss options and strategies relative to different types of threats uh, make it a useful make it a useful organization and an instrument for world uh, stability and hopefully world peace. Not all NATO members have the same perspective on issues. For example, NATO's relationship with its former adversary, Russia. Many of the new NATO states, that is, many of the states that were at one time part of the Warsaw Pact, are very critical of Russia and Russia's, Russians' actions in, in different parts of the world, such as uh, the Russo-Georgia War and even Chechnya. But some of the older NATO members have been very hesitant to risk um, um, uh, upsetting their relationship with Russia. So they've even had a, a different type of position on some of Russia's present foreign policy moves. Some of the new NATO members, especially those from Eastern Europe, had been under the yoke of Soviet and Russian domination for a long time. And I think that it was a great relief to countries such as Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, to join NATO, and, and they flexed some of their independence. I've seen that in some of the meetings that I've been at, but also from my just general observations of the alliance. Uh, they, they flexed some of their independence and have been very willing to speak out uh, against their, their old master if you will, uh, in Russia, whereas the United States and France and, and, and Great and Great Britain and Germany, I think have been, it's been my experience, have been a little more cautious in, in some of the statements regarding Russia's strategies and, 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 and politics uh, these days, not only in Europe, but in, in the wider world as a whole. So um, I, think, I think that uh, some of this uh, outspokenness, if you would, is basically a reflection of a newfound freedom in, in the diplomatic world for some of these new countries. And uh, this, this diplomatic freedom is enhanced, I think, with uh, these countries now being a member of NATO and, and being under the umbrella of, of the NATO, NATO security. So, you know, we've seen a lot of changes in the last 15, 20 years in, in NATO, uh, dealing with everything from doctrine, membership, uh, uh, to logistics involved different military actions. So, you know, it, it's definitely a different organization than it was uh, during the Cold War. NATO faces significant challenges moving forward. The expansion of the alliance to, to 28 allies now has, has led to, in my view, uh, a certain number of problems. One is alliance cohesion. Uh, during the Cold War, at the end of the day, after squabbles and, and messy fights and inefficiencies, uh, NATO stood together. NATO had tremendous solidarity when it came to the big issues and the big policies. That cohesion has been fragmented a great deal. Uh, the, the, the simple number of allies and the uh, different uh, political and geographic and cultural considerations that they bring to the table now make an alliance that's ruled by consensus uh, very difficult. And we're starting to see some serious, in my view, uh, inefficiencies and difficulties that are 
that are uh, making themselves known. And, and I think one of the key areas where uh, these problems show up is in, is in resources. With the loss of the Soviet threat, uh, the idea of how do you pay for NATO has become increasingly an area of, uh, of difficulty for the alliance. And the global economic uh, downturn of the last year has only made it worse. So we're really looking at uh, some major resourcing problems uh, that the alliance has come to grips with that it didn't have to deal with before. I mean, parliaments voted to fund this alliance during the Cold War, and now we're getting a lot more questioning about why should we spend this money. So it, it's in the middle of an operation uh, in Afghanistan. It, it's it, it's sort of it might seem unusual, but we are seeing some very serious resource problems. And thirdly, I, I would say that uh, uh, back to Afghanistan, where there's a major war underway, where NATO is committed to this, where there are, as I say, 70-some thousand troops under ISAF command from 43 different countries, we still see a lot of the procedures, the decision-making, and the resourcing structure that's left over from the Cold War. Uh, territorial defense, uh, allies can't, can't get to Afghanistan, they don't have deployable forces, uh, they don't have interoperable forces. So, in some ways, uh, I'm not sure the alliance is more meaningful. Uh, I think the alliance is, is in some ways uh, struggling. And if the, if the uh, Afghanistan operation is not successful, um, I think it's going to be a historic turning point uh, for, for NATO as an alliance. Professor Johnson highlights several challenges NATO must manage. Well, there's absolutely no doubt that one of the dilemmas of NATO is that it presently takes as much as 60 weeks from NATO to respond to an urgent uh, request from their commanders in the field. And, and that's just not workable in, in, in a dynamic combat or political environment. I think one of the responses to this, as you suggest, might be a council of, of elders, if you will, that can help speed up different types of uh, 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 policies and strategies for NATO uh, consensus is, can be very, very difficult. But also, you might suggest, if you, if you believe that NATO should exist as an organization, that we should give more power to the actual Secretary General. He might need more power to be able to get around some of these long time delays that uh, are required in formulating consensus across all, all members. I mean, even in, the, even in the panel that I deal with within NATO, I see this all the time, that it's very, very difficult to get consensus across member nations. Sometimes just dealing with wording and the semantics can be extremely difficult. Even though English is used as the, the official uh, language of NATO meetings, when dealing with some of our NATO partners and dealing with complex concepts that might make up doctrine or other types of um, policy statements, it's often very, very difficult to get wording, just the wording that all the NATO countries can sign off of because of different cultural biases and language biases and the like. So, I mean, you know, this, this whole notion of, 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 of strategy by consensus can be very damning in that it can take a very, very long time. So I think ultimately we might need to have different types of committees that can help streamline things or maybe even give more power to the NATO Secretary General. So, why does the United States remain in NATO? Our guests provide additional insight. The greatest value that NATO provides the United States is um, I think the United States uh, does not want to 
pursue certain types of international ventures on their own. I think that they want to be able to say that we've got support of the international community, and I think that NATO provides a very important um, um, instrument for doing that, uh, it, be it in Iraq, be it in Afghanistan. But let's not forget also that, that NATO's actions in Afghanistan right now are basically a reflection that, you know, Article 5 was invoked, mutual self-defense. So while the United States, I mean, this was, this, this was a direct reaction to the events of 9-11, where you had other NATO countries coming to the self-defense of the United States. So I think that's an, an important aspect. Without a strong leadership and a new strategic concept, NATO may indeed become an ineffective organization. NATO has to come to grips with its decision-making processes. It is almost uh, unmanageable now that every single decision in NATO, no matter how critical or how trivial, has to be decided by consensus. It is, it is a, uh, uh, an almost unworkable system. Uh, if, if NATO does not find a way to agree for at least, I mean, questions of war and peace, deployment of soldiers, major expenditures, of course, that has to be consensus decision-making. But to have one nation who, who may have some particular historic or cultural quirk torpedo NATO policies uh, because of that quirk is just unworkable. They have to f find a way to come to some sort of uh, qualified uh, majority voting uh, in which at least, if not the critical issues, at least important issues can be decided by let's say, a large majority of the nations as opposed to consensus. If, if they don't unlock that, I think NATO is, is uh, condemning itself to uh, an inefficient and ineffective future. And without a clear sense of purpose, NATO may become irrelevant. There's no question that if you unpeel the onion, that the role of NATO has changed drastically and the importance of NATO since the demise of the Soviet Union. I mean, we've got to keep in mind that NATO was initially created as a response to the Soviet threat, especially the Soviet threat to Europe. And that threat has changed drastically in the last 15, 20 years. So um, the question of, of what NATO means to the United States, I think actually it's, it's relative importance has decreased over the last couple of decades. But with that being said, it's still very important, I think, in certain international ventures that the United States wants to be able to say, hey, we've got part of the world supporting us and working with us on, on, on these actions. And I, I think that's really where the, the importance of NATO comes into play. NATO is trying to find its place in the international community to avoid meeting the same fate of its longtime foe, the Soviet Union. It has been suggested that since the demise of the Soviet Union, NATO no longer has a viable mission. Indeed, two decades after the fall of the Soviet Union, we should ask the question, does NATO continue to have a purpose? Well, I think uh, NATO provides a value in, in a, a large number of ways. Uh, first of all, the idea of, of being, uh, being able to operate with an alliance of democracies, of successful industrial powers like this, is an enormously powerful uh, tool in our diplomatic toolbox. 
And if you look at uh, NATO's, uh, I would say, magnetism, uh, we are now cooperating with, with Japan, with Australia. I mean, we have uh, troops from Singapore and Jordan uh, uh, in ISAF uh, in Afghanistan. The, the pull of an alliance of this magnitude and strength and economic power is just enormous. And uh, it can add so much to uh, U.S. initiatives uh, if we have the skill and diplomacy uh, to harness it and point it in a direction that makes sense both, both for the United States uh, and for NATO. Take, for example, relationship with Russia. It, it is so much more uh, effective uh, to deal with Russia through through NATO, if that's possible, um, because of, of all the elements that NATO and its members bring to that sort of relationship as opposed to just uh, a bilateral uh, approach. You know, from a military point of view, there's, you know, having uh, forces forward uh, still makes a big difference, whether it's in Europe or in Turkey, uh, another, another ally, uh, makes a huge difference. Our missile defense efforts, um, I, I think, are, are greatly enhanced uh, by, uh, uh, by support from NATO. Uh, I think in the future, if we're, if we're, going, to have, um, if we're going to have diplomatic or geographic uh, issues in the high north, well, uh, NATO is already looking at that as an alliance. You, you have allies, allies like Norway and Denmark, Canada, the United States, that are very interested in high north policies. Uh, there's another area where all the allies could be harnessed into a unified policy, which, uh, which would strengthen the United States' hand, in my view. And then, of course, there's all the opportunities for humanitarian activity, whether it's in Africa or disaster areas, etc., uh, all of which are bolstered uh, when you do it on a multinational basis as, as opposed to the United States acting unilaterally. Our guests, like many other prominent policy experts, identify NATO's value and contribution to the interests of the United States. However, recognition of NATO's role appears to be very low among U.S. citizens. Is NATO's role just poorly understood in the United States, or could there be another explanation? To be perfectly honest, I, I, I'm not sure that U.S. citizens have ever been very involved in NATO policy. Uh, I, I think it's an afterthought. Uh, they only seem to get involved when, there, when there's some issue that catch their, catches their attention, and, and often that's a negative issue, whether it's you know, deploying Persians and, and cruise missiles uh, in NATO and all the, the demonstrations against those back in the 1980s, etc. I, I, I honestly don't see a very high level of engagement or, or honestly a very high level of understanding of what NATO is in the general U.S. populace, to be perfectly honest. I think one of the reasons might be is that NATO has been successful. There's, there's no big issue over here. NATO was able to deter the Soviet Union. There was, there was no war. And it's now taken sort of for granted. It's just, it's just not an issue. And, and I would have to say that NATO does a very poor job in terms of its own public relations and public affairs. It doesn't really sell itself uh, the way, in my view, it should. I've never sensed a great deal of engagement outside of the security community, you know, the professional security community. Uh, I mean, I, I can go back to Maine and talk to people about NATO and get fairly blank looks. How do the sacrifices of NATO military personnel, past and present, help make this world a safer place? Colonel Sullivan articulates the sentiments of Cold War warriors. 
from a historical point of view, the fact that we were able to actually reunify uh, Germany and most of Europe uh, and set them on the road to democracy without a nuclear war was a, a, a historic and maybe unprecedented uh, accomplishment by, by an alliance, by a political military alliance. It's amazing to go from uh, almost uh, a daily engagement with the possibility of, of a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union uh, and literally World War III that evolve again however messy however inefficient but to see it evolve into a situation where most of North America and most of Europe are, are on the same side in the same alliance and uh, our issues have much more to do with things like uh, terrorism and cybersecurity than they do with nuclear Armageddon uh, I mean it's you got to call it a step forward <laughs> marks the 60th anniversary of NATO as well as the 20th year since the demise of the Soviet Union. NATO has much to celebrate but has had little opportunity to do so. NATO's continued relevance is far from assured and is struggling with major issues including supporting ongoing combat operations, enlargement of its membership, a new strategic concept and debates about its internal decision-making processes. Given all of these uncertainties, NATO's leadership bears the responsibility to ensure each controversial issue is addressed in a timely manner without becoming the sole focus of the organization. And NATO's leadership must carefully guide the large bureaucracy if NATO is to remain a relevant and strong defense organization capable of meeting the threats of today and the future. Dialectica thanks this week's guests, Colonel Ron Sullivan and Professor Thomas Johnson. Thank you for listening and join us next week on Dialectica. Dialectica has been brought to you by the students of the LBJ School of Public Affairs in partnership with the LBJ Journal of Public Affairs. Sources for our show can be found on our website, which can be accessed through kbrx.org. Any opinions offered on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas, or KBRX Student Radio. Thank you to our producers and our guests, and remember, you are listening to KBRX Austin.